0: Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery, so you can develop better products that your customers love. Today, we're talking about four leadership motions that enable the increase of organizational effectiveness, productivity, and alleviate organizational friction, waste, and indecision. The motions reflect the need for leadership change as organizations struggle today with higher performance while supporting employees. And we see some big shifts in that, especially post-COVID now. Sharing the four leadership motions with us is Janice Frazier. Janice built her career in Silicon Valley as a startup founder, product manager, and confidant for entrepreneurs and enterprise executives alike. She currently supports very large organizations, including P&G, in becoming more innovative and agile. She also guides several venture-funded startup companies, federal government entities, and nonprofit organizations. Delighted for her to be a guest with us. She has a great, deep, and rich background. She is currently the co-author of the recent book, farther, faster, and far less drama, how to reduce stress and make extraordinary progress wherever you lead. As a reminder, listeners, we do take written notes of everything we discuss. That's a great way to go back and find details if you want to. We also prepare a one-page action guide to help you put immediately into action some of the key takeaways that Janice will help us with. It's also a great discussion guide if you want to have a discussion with your colleagues about these concepts. Also, this podcast is made possible by the Rapid Product Master Experience, the RPM experience. This helps product VPs and leaders get their product managers and everyone else contributing to product really on the same page and increasing their performance together, working in alignment to reach those North Star objectives. It works really well for new teams or established teams that are facing a big challenge together. We, what we do is we meet for nine weeks virtually, 75 minutes each week, and participants learn the seven essential product knowledge areas. They build trust and collaboration in the process. It's not just like training that you might uh, be used to in other places. It really is a unique experience. You want to find out if it can help you go to productmasterynow.com slash RPM. Janice, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I I, I want to first get your take just on the, the leadership book. And we're talking about leadership today. But your background is as a product person, you've created products, you have companies uh, be successful with innovation. Mm-hmm. No doubt I, my guess is as you've helped organizations, you've had to get into leadership, but why take on this topic of le- leadership coming from a product background?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And the product piece has always been with me from the very, very beginning, even before I understood anything about software product development or product management or any of that, like I was still creating new products from my very first job out of college way, way back in the dark ages. And so the instinct, the drive to make things out of, to make something out of nothing that helps people have a better life or have solve their problems, what have you, Mm -hmm. like that instinct kind of was innate with me. And as I as I progressed through my career, so I started working at Netscape right after the IPO. Like hottest startup in history. When I started there were two buildings and when I left there were thirty-six and I was only there for eighteen months. It was like they were acquiring buildings. Yeah, rapid growth, insanely fast growth. And it was the advent of the kind of commercial public world wide web. And so like that that first dot-com boom, suddenly all of these people were now startup founders and were creating something new, not just new products, but whole new businesses, whole new business models, like all of this. And so a lot of really inexperienced, kind of terrible leaders <laughs> started trying, right? And so that was this milieu that I was in. And through that time frame, there was a lot of what I what my husband and I started to call flaily squanderness, like startup founders just trying a bunch of things. And but previous to that, I had been working at some of the best managed, best run companies like on the planet, like really fantastic leadership. And there's a guy named Jim Barksdale, who was the CEO of Netscape, and he was very influential in me thinking about what is it to be an effective leader During a time of hyper growth and then immediately follow that with all of this startup founder energy where people were trying leadership. And so very quickly, these two journeys kind of merged, fused for me. One, the journey of like, how can you help? How can you help people through new products and how can you help brand new leaders be effective in the heroic things that they're trying to do? And so for probably 20 years, I was just I was Equally interested in both practices. How Mm -hmm. can you make great products and how can, you know, what amateur leaders become effective and competent? And so that just became part of my, became a hobby, right? right? Like observing leadership and observing what is repeatable and effective.
0: Just like products, you were thrown into the need, you recognized a need, right? Some unmet uh, needs there with leadership and how do we go about trying to satisfy those? Um, It's interesting, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, it is actually, you hit the nail on the head. Like this book that we're going to talk about is the result of a user-centered design challenge, which is how can regular people be extraordinary leaders on purpose, that was it. Like, it's, it was very framed very much as a how might we question, very product-centric kind of question.
0: Right. Yeah. Good, good design thinking approach. And and it's very typical. Mm-hmm. This, it was my career path, uh, seeing this happen to people around me as well, right? Good engineers that get promoted into management and leadership positions. And we don't know anything about that until we, <laughs> we're faced with having to do it. Right. So. <laughs> We we need people to help us. And you're going to help us today take us through these four leadership motions. Can you give us an overview of that? And then we can dive into each one of those, just how these came about.
1: So four leadership motions really are we call them motions rather than principles or practices or what have you, because they're simply things that you can do. And we actually borrowed that word from kind of the sales organization. They're like mm, they're the right. selling motions. And I was like, I don't know anything about selling, but that word makes sense to me. And so we adopted that word. And so these are the ideas that these are things that you can do that are reliable and effective. So okay. it's how can I do leadership? in a modern context, in a way that is reliable and effective. So it's, that's the that's what they mean. And the four are, and I'll just list them and then I'll go into kind of what they mean. The first is orient honestly, mm-hmm. value outcomes, which is something that's very familiar to a lot of product leaders right now, valuing outcomes, leverage the brains and make durable decisions. Okay. And I treat this almost like a spinner on a board game, like if i'm having a if i'm in a stuck place as a leader or i have a difficult situation to handle i can just spin the spinner and wherever it lands i can say how might we value outcomes more effectively and once you start thinking in that direction you're going to make progress to go into a little bit of detail about each one the first is i think the underpinning of a, a lot of really good leadership behavior orient honestly asks a couple questions. One, where are we right now? What makes this moment complicated? And are we all in the same place? So you told me that you're in Colorado right now. So if I was in Colorado Springs and I had to get my whole team to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I sent them all driving directions, those driving directions wouldn't matter if half my team was in Miami. So this idea that we, before we can set goals and hope to achieve them, we have to know where we are. And we have to know what makes this moment complicated so that we can begin to untangle it and get everybody into the right place. So we, we have so many ways as leaders to set goals. We're taught from almost from like leadership birth, how to set SMART goals and OKRs and OGSMs and what have you. But nobody's taught us an easy, repeatable method for knowing where we are right now and aligning, aligning around that. And that makes so much difference when you want to go fast and when you want to um, re- reduce operational waste. So uh, where are we now and what makes this moment complicated? It's a great place to start. So that's the thing. Okay.
0: okay. I'd love to talk about an example uh, as we tie into these. And then I don't know if it makes more sense to do that later after we hear them all or to introduce it now. Right. Like it may be an example of orient honestly. You take that the direction you want to go in.
1: I'll share a story about a startup, and, and so I, I also want to say these are things that I think great leaders already do. It's just that we wanted to name them and describe them so that we can do them on purpose whenever we need to. So mm-hmm. a lot of this is about connecting what good leaders are already doing to something that we can name and practice. So I'll give you an example. I was facilitating an offsite for a small company just recently, and they hadn't had an in-person gathering of their remote team since before COVID, right? So it's been Mm. a few years. Now they've done offsite like things remotely, but this is the first time they are in person. And we figured out what were the big themes that we wanted to land over this three-day event. And the really big one, it turned out, was that some of the kind of market conditions right now are making it hard for them to be profitable. And the first Orient Honestly thing is we did what's called a sailboat retro, right? So some people have probably experienced this where you draw a sailboat on a whiteboard and you draw the anchor and you get team members to name What's holding us back? That's on the anchor. What are the wind in our sails, right? That's what's making us go fast. What are the rocks up ahead? Who's standing in the crow's nest looking out ahead? Where are you on the boat? And what that allowed us to do was take a snapshot of where we are right now and what the collective wisdom, what the team thinks might be preventing us from being more profitable from really hitting our financial goals. And as a result of that, we were able to say, what are some actions? How can we action that? So now that we have this collective picture, how can we action that? So that's an example of how we oriented honestly about this really strategic problem for this company in a very practical, rapid way. So within one hour, we got 20 people to come up with a list of 10 things that are the blockers to profitability and the, and also the wins in our sales.
0: Excellent. So these, what we might call that a canvas, a sailboat canvas tool yeah, to sure. quickly just identify, making it clear, where are we now mm-hmm. together? What's those obstacles? What's the things that are helping us and getting more clarity on what are those market conditions making it difficult for us to perform?
1: absolutely and if anybody's interested in sailboat retro if you just do a google search for sailboat retro you'll find the format Um, it's really it's one of my favorites
0: good so our first motion is to orient honestly uh, and just a good perspective to make sure we know where we are now
1: yeah the next one is to value outcomes so in traditional planning processes you write down a list of here are all the things I'm going to need to do to reach our planned goal and here are the dates. And so you create your Gantt chart and you outline your dependencies and all of that planning is really helpful and valuable. Unfortunately, real life conditions often disrupt that. You get halfway through your plan or a third of the way through your plan and you learn something new and that causes you to have to change your path. And in I would say in these days, there are all sorts of disruptors that can come into play, whether obviously we all just lived through the lockdown and there might be more breaks out somewhere as happened recently, or there might be all sorts of things. And so we are called upon now as leaders to exist in this world where externalities are making our plans sometimes obsolete very quickly. Mm -hmm. So we need to somehow find a way to enable flexibility without losing sight of where we wanna get to. And so valuing outcomes is the unlock that allows us to do our planning, but by valuing the outcome more than we value the deliverables or the activities in our plans, we can release the pressure to be able to anticipate with perfect clarity exactly what the path is going to be. And the metaphor I use for this is I, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. We've got huge bridges. We've got huge container ships in and out all the time. If I want to sail from you know San Francisco over to Berkeley a- across the bay, I'm going to have to go through one of those bridges and I might come out and suddenly there's a big container ship in my way. I have to go around it. So my plan had been to sail straight, but really what I had to do is weave around it and adjust my sales for the changing winds. And that's what we're talking about. I still wanna to get to Berkeley. So the idea is value the outcomes more than your plans and the activities that you have on the roadmap. So you're gonna ask for an example of that, aren't you?
0: I am gonna ask, for example, and, and a follow-up question. Let me do the follow-up question first on that, which is the Great. difficulties, you say that, and I, I'm sure listeners along with me go, of course, right? The, the things get in the way, plans have to change, we wanna value the outcome. And yet, just like you, I've had the experience in many organizations, I'm sure listeners have as well, simple things. Once the project gets going, It maintains. We're going to do those things. Once the item gets added to the roadmap, even if we learn we shouldn't do it, it's locked in and it's part of the roadmap now. This is not a simple cultural thing to impact. And do you just have any tips for you know what those conversations should be like? Because your sailing analogy makes really good sense. And yet, for some reason, projects get a momentum, and we the organization tends to not like to mess with them.
1: And this is why I wanted this point in a leadership book, because I think that's the place, like that's Mm -hmm. the level at which it has to be this mindset, really, this is a mindset as much as a behavior, right? That's where this mindset has to take root. So in in this execute according to the plan is so ingrained in how all of us were trained and brought up. You can think, tell me what you're going to do and then do it. That's how I'm going to, Know that I can trust you. Well, and and when you even put it like that, tell me what you're going to do. That's what is your list of activities? What are the things you're going to, what are the steps you're going to take? So that's part one is asking for the right thing. Part two is really measuring outcomes. Most of the time, most of the organizations that I have examined are not actually measuring the outcome. They're not they're using the activities and deliverables as a proxy that assumes that if they did these things, the outcome happens. And then suddenly you're not hitting earnings and you're wondering why, because you valued the plan more than the outcome. So even though rationally, those of us with feet on the ground executing on these plans know that they have to change and adjust but at the leadership level we have to start compensating people for the results we have to start measuring and valuing the results we have to start asking about the results because the results is really way more important than the steps to get there the steps to get there are just an approximation of good that i can believe in and trust yeah so i think it really needs to start at the leadership level
0: and you're right i was going (laughs) to ask you for an example
1: of that (laughs) So I'm going to tell you about my own failure story. This is a product failure story. It's a little while ago. It's it's going back about 10 years. I had a startup company and it was right at the beginning of the real boom in online learning. Our population was innovators and startup founders. And we were already global. We had customers around the world. We had probably a couple thousand consumer level customers. And we were offered some venture capital funding and we were like, yes, we can scale now. We're excited about this. It was an unsolicited couple of calls that are like, hey, I want to invest in you. We're like, that's amazing. Now we can have a much bigger impact. And as we went out, we looked like we were executing exactly according to plan. We were recording videos, putting them online, putting the supplies for our workshops into boxes, shipping them around the world. So the activities were all exactly what we thought we were going for. What we forgot was to measure the impact of the activities that we were doing. And we had one of our, one of our employees was out in the field. So he was in Eastern Europe and he came back and he's like, I got to tell you, people don't want videos. They want you. They want what they wanted was in person. And so we valued our plan, our roadmap, our roadmap said, we're going to have this set of offerings. They're going to go into these kind of packages. They're going to have this kind of online presence and they're going to, we're going to ship internet. We, and we executed every one of those things, but our business really failed to grow and it failed to grow because we weren't listening to the customer feedback, which is really ironic because that's where I really cut my teeth as a product person is in user research. Mm -hmm. And it was, I was so stubborn that I failed to notice that we were not getting to the outcome of uh, repeatable growth, even though we were achieving our roadmap and ultimately we ended up having to sell the company before it's time there you
0: go a sobering lesson right and and sometimes those difficult challenging intense moments i'm sure a lot went with that that's where we learn a lot
1: (laughs) for sure for sure yeah it was a good learning moment for me it was like no they don't want video they want a person yeah
0: Okay. And then you're, you have to figure out how to scale that, but that, that, that's ain't another story.
1: And there we can talk about the trade-offs and what does quality mean, right? So the reason yeah. that we were so stubborn about video is that we felt that video would deliver the best quality experience, but the best quality experience is the one that the con- consumer will take, not the one that is ide- ideal somehow pedagogically. So yeah, they wanted emotional support, not just factual information. And we didn't quite, I was too stubborn to hear the lesson.
0: Yeah, it's a subtle difference. I've seen a number of books in the last few years that basically disclose everything that the company coach consultant does, right? Here's the recipe, follow the book. And yet what the customer base wants, and I've been through one of these, right? So, okay, I know how to do all of this thing that you're telling me to do. And the example I'm thinking of is a marketing example, right? How do I do a better job positioning the work I do? And yet their sales rocket because people want to know that they're doing it right. They want that face-to-face connection with someone who's actually done it to know that they're doing it right. Yeah. Okay, so we got orient. Honestly, value outcomes.
1: Mm-hmm. Next
0: one I think was leverage the brain. I got leverage title the
1: brains. Yes, sweet, delicious brains. This is this captures a whole lot of the zeitgeist right now. So we see a lot in the business press about psychological safety, diversity and inclusion, even going back 10 or 15 years, we've got design thinking, right? There was a movement in certain wing of Agile called Balance Team. All of these things are touching on this idea that somehow cross-functional, cross-level, cross-generational, cross-whatever collaboration actually makes us move more quickly, more effectively with better thinking. And so how do you do that? And again how do you we're always about how can you do it reliably well and without drama like when you start collaborating with people the more people you involve the more potential drama there is the right. more potential there is to move small slowly and so what we wanted to do was see and note the patterns that enabled people to be effective in collaboration and So one of the patterns that we found is that there are really three kinds of people that need to be invited to any meeting or decision, the people with the subject matter expertise, right? So knowledge holders, then there's the people with the authority to say, yes, often what we do is we collaborate, but we leave that person out until the very end. And then you have to catch them up and persuade them of something, which is pretty inefficient. So people with the authority to say yes to whatever your answer is. And then these are the folks that are always forgotten. The people who have to live with the outcome. Mm -hmm. So my best favorite example of this is the, the customer service person, right? The front lines, it often lowest on the hierarchy, but often with the most direct experience. And so if you... Find a way to include each of those three people in your conversation, your decision making. You're going to get a much richer kind of um, idea generation, a much richer problem solving conversation. And obviously, you're going to need some good facilitation skills to balance out the power inequities when you have that kind of cross level collaboration. There, there's lot, there's lots of nuance in this section about how to get people from different backgrounds, different. Functional areas, different departments, different teams to work effectively together. But a small number of well-chosen collaborators is going to provide you with much more horsepower than you would have on your own.
0: Define small for us.
1: Literally, my favorite size is three.
0: Okay. So those three people you just mentioned... Mm -hmm. Right. One of each one of them. Right. Yeah. expert. Yep.
1: Yeah. Okay. And obviously that's not realistic. Right. Realistic might be five. But if it's 20, right. then you're going to have Two. then we're going to have a much different kind of problem. Right. And obviously this means it can't be a direct democracy. One person, one vote. Each person has to represent a whole range of other right. people. And so they need to develop skill and experience in representing points of view that are not just our own. Mm -hmm. And again, this is stuff that that some kinds of teams are really good at already. I've had the pleasure of working with some very amazing balanced teams um, in my career. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: So cross-functional work is necessary. Uh, We want to bring in the capabilities that are important, but specifically the person with the subject that's truly the subject matter expert on the topic, the person has the authority to move forward or not, or to... whatever decision is being made um, and that person uh, probably representing others that is impacted by whatever decision is made.
1: That's right.
0: Okay. Always important. And I do, as you stressed too, I, I think we sometimes forget in our speed to, get, to accomplish things, who is being impacted by the decision. And mm-hmm. if we don't have them as part of the decision, getting by and later is much more challenging. And it's so much mm-hmm. simpler when they're just part of the decision.
1: You get you also just get different kinds of information when you involve. Mm-hmm, right. Them. Like you just, you, you're you going to make, make better, better decisions. Yeah, you're going to make a better decision. Right.
0: That's Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So we got three motions so far. What's our fourth
1: one? We, you just teed it up. It's decision making. So uh-huh. we call it durable decisions. And durable, think Carhartt's pants, like not the prettiest fashion but really get the job done and they're going to stand the test of time, mm-hmm. right? That's what we're looking for. So, there are two ways that we see decision making really create inefficiencies. And the first way is those decisions that take a really long time, right? You're like, "Ugh, we never make a decision. They're never going to make a call. It's going to take forever. We've been talking about this forever." That's what that sounds like. The second kind are the decisions that are made like immediately that are just like snap decisions. And This happens so much in big companies. You're like, you're on a call and somebody makes the decision and you can just hear or see on the faces on the zoom, right? You can just see that nobody in the room believes for a second. That is the right thing to do. So the decision is made, but you know, everyone's going to go off and do whatever they want anyway. And, and you don't discover that maybe for a week or two. And then you're like, wait, but I thought we decided on that other thing. And so now you've broken trust. People have lost respect for each other. At least it's been eroded a bit, right? And they no longer believe that the decision-making apparatus of that particular group is effective. And so you've created chaos and misalignment, right? So that's the snap decision. The long decision, that comes from, is this the right decision? Is this the best decision? Mm -hmm. Do we all agree this is the best decision? And all of that is creating an artificially high standard of quality and agreement, right? And there's no way to know whether a thing is categorically the right or best decision. It's like very, you can maybe say, is this the decision that is likely to make us, I don't know, more money or whatever. You can give a single criteria, but that instinct toward excellence can really be a blocker to progress, right? Wouldn't it be better to enable us to disagree and commit, disagree and commit. And so rather than consensus, what we wanna look for is consent. Can we all get behind this? So in order to create durable decisions, I asked two, two questions. One, if we went this direction, would it move us toward our outcome? Would this make progress if we went this direction? And can we all live with it? Because you know what, if somebody can't live with it, I wanna know that. Maybe, that's, maybe there's enough real reason to reconsider, but is this a direction we that we can all live with and does it move us toward progress? If you ask those questions rather than do we all agree that it's the best decision, you're going to make much more progress much more quickly without creating that that chaos that comes from people going off and doing their own thing anyway.
0: So the, this strikes me as tying back into our first one with orientate, with honesty, or honestly, so yep. that we know where we are, where we're headed, Right, yep. the, if we're on that sailboat and we got some things to overcome, Making durable decisions really leverages the previous things we've talked about so far. I mean, it's just part of leadership is making decisions.
1: That's right. That's right. And I've done a lot of studying and work in the area of like, decision rights, like racy models and things mm-hmm. like this. And what I have found is that those models can be very effective if they are universally adopted across an organization with good faith my experience though has been that is by far the exception mm-hmm. it's usually that racy and other models like that are brought in when people are tremendously frustrated and they're foisted into a group the group doesn't actually buy into it doesn't believe in it and they end up not actually having the effect that they were intended to have right. so what i have found is that we need something that's much more h- human designed much more realistic and so just having a couple questions to ask as you're as a leader as you're framing up the moment of choice can be much more effective in getting us to um some good progress yeah,
0: yeah. <clears throat> and again a, a cultural issue that we have to have the environment where we can disagree and offer That's right. dissent and That's right. have that discussion regardless can we still get behind this or is it really a better solution we need to consider yeah yeah, yeah. 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 very good Thank you for taking us through the motions. Thank you for pr- providing more detail in your book for us to get our hands around okay. to dive into each of those farther, faster, and far less drama. Before mm-hmm. we get into how people can find out more about you and the book and everything, we do like innovation quotes. Mm-hmm. We asked guests to bring one. I asked you to bring one, and I'm looking forward to being surprised by that and what it means to you.
1: I hope that this is a surprise. Maybe somebody else has said it, but my, my favorite quote is from Linus Pauling. And he said, there are different variations of this, but how do you go about having good ideas? You have a lot of ideas and throw away the bad ones. Mm -hmm. That was like, that's like going back to 1960, 61, 62 is when he was talking about those things. So that's my favorite innovation quote ever. Have
0: lots of ideas and throw away
1: the bad ones. Yeah. the throwing away is the
0: the hard part. Taking action on the important ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: yep, yep.
0: Okay. Thank you for sharing the quote with us. How can people find out about you, the work you're doing, as well as uh, details on your book?
1: Wonderful. Thank you for asking. So LinkedIn is where I'm pretty active on social media, but you can also find me on my website, JaniceFraser.com. That's J-A-N-I-C-E-F-R-A-S-E-R.com. And please do check out the book. It's available on Amazon, Farther, Faster, and Far Less Drama.
0: Okay. We will make sure the links are in the show notes to make that easy. Sounds like com is a good place to go for everyone to find out more about Book, your other resources available, and the great ways that you help companies these days also. Janice, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: It was our pleasure as well. Love hearing from people with deep experience and insights, and you've uh, had a fascinating career. And I yeah. wish you and the, that the book does quite well, because it will be a good resource for people. Also listeners, if you want to find the written summary of everything we discussed and the one page action guide, including the links we just discussed, please go to productmasterynow.com slash 466. As always, keep innovating.
1: Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now. Where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.